Peter writes this first epistle to believers who are scattered and suffering. Though living in a hostile world, they have a living hope which originates in the Father's foreknowledge, the Holy Spirit's sanctifying, and the Son's sprinkled blood. Furthermore, they are blessed and rejoicing amid their trials because they have a living hope, inexpressible and glorious joy, and Old Testament prophecies. It must be stated that Peter is writing from his experience of suffering. This epistle is not the vain babbling of someone in power telling those suffering to continue to endure injustice. Peter endured the same injustice as those to whom he wrote. He nor the church had any political power or prestige. They were at the mercy of the governing authorities who were persecuting them. Peter did not rally his readers to political insurrection or rebellion. Instead, to a scattered and suffering church he wrote, Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. 1 Peter 1, 13-15 Peter introduces verses 13-16 through 16 of chapter 1, with the term therefore. It refers back to everything in verses 1 through 12. And since believers have hope amid the hostility and are blessed and rejoiced amid trials, they should be living the blessed life. In order to live their blessed life, believers must be prepared, be obedient, and be holy. For American Christians, 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16, needs to be etched into their minds now more than ever. The current age of rage and cancel culture has resulted in an increase in slander and hostility against biblical Christianity. We must not succumb to the pressures to conform to the whims and wishes of paganism. We must be prepared, we must be obedient, and we must be holy. And when we do this, we will live our blessed life, even during difficult days. Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin with verse 13. And as we consider living our blessed life, we see first we need to be prepared. We can live our blessed life, but we need to be prepared. Verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober, in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first obligation of living the blessed life is to be prepared. The phrase prepare for actions can be rendered as gird up your loins or gather up the clothes of the hip area. Now in an age when men and women wore tunics, gathering up the clothes around one's hips was a common expression. A person cannot run well or work in a tunic or robe. Thus the individual would gather up their tunic into a belt, freeing their legs for action. 1 Kings 18.46 And Elijah girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. A modern equivalent for gird up your loins, or here would be roll up your sleeves. Now notice he, Peter links the term gird up your loins or prepare for action to the term mind. And so it conveys the nuance of preparing one's thoughts for action. You know, if Peter wrote this today, he would have probably put it this way. Pull your thoughts together, 
Don't let anything hinder your mind as you put it to work for God. In other words, it's an exhortation to discipline our minds against loose thinking and theological laziness. The believer's mind must always be ready to think biblically. You know, interestingly, the phrase, gird up your loins, stirred up a particular memory for Peter's Jewish readers. Partaking of the first Passover in Egypt, the Israelites were to eat, quote, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, Exodus 12, 11. God commanded them to eat in this manner to convey the necessity of being prepared mentally and physically to march when given the command. As believers, we too must be prepared for action. We too must be ready when God calls. Christ also used the same phrase in Luke 12, 35. Be dressed in readiness, which in the Greek is literally, let your loins be girded. In the context there, Jesus is emphasizing the necessity of being perpetually prepared for his return. When the master is away, the stewards of the house tend to be lazy. When he returns, the stewards are frantic because they have not done the good work he required of them. There are things that you and I should be doing and are not because we've been lulled into complacency because of Christ's delay. He's the master and we're the stewards of his house. We must be prepared for his return today by doing the good work that he has called us to do. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. As well, Paul uses the phrase, gird up your loins, in his illusion of the Christian's armor. In Ephesians 6.14, Paul writes, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Now your translation, if you're using a NASB 95 update, your translation is going to be all in caps. Having girded your loins with truth. That tells you that the phrase, having girded your loins with truth, is a quote from the Old Testament. Particularly, Isaiah 11.5, which declares that the Messiah will wear a belt of faithfulness around his waist. Isaiah 11.5, and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. The term faithfulness and the Greek term truth both refer to being characterized as trustworthy and truthful Character. So when Paul quotes Isaiah 11.5, he's signifying that the armor worn by the Messiah is now supplied to the people of Messiah. And as such, we are to fasten the belt of truth around our waist. Now culturally, when a soldier's belt was fastened, it signified that he was on duty and ready to fight. And as such, we must be characterized by truthfulness, always on duty, and prepared for the fight. Now, is that true of you? Are you characterized by truthfulness? Are you always on duty? Are you prepared to fight for the faith? And it goes back to 
Are you prepared? Now, in order to prepare your mind for action, you need to do two things. You need to keep sober and fix your hope. Keep sober and fix your hope. First, we need to keep sober in spirit. Now, the word keep sober means to be in control of your thoughts, to not give in to irrational thinking. Boy, how, how needed is that today? The day and age in which we live in which so many Christians are given over to irrational thinking. They believe anything and everything they hear and read. They don't take any time to go and research and find out if it's true or accurate. Well, so-and-so said, or I heard such-and-such. And, of course, if it's on the Internet, it must be true. You know, when we're experiencing suffering, it's easy to give in to irrational thinking. Hence the importance of avoiding any addictions or attitudes that can control your mind or body. Believer, we have to control our minds and our bodies. And if we're not in control of our minds, if we're not in control of our bodies, then we're not prepared for action. Further, we're exposed to enticements which will draw us away from God. We must be prepared. We must prepare our minds. And notice, we keep sober in spirit. That refers to having our mind under spiritual control or balance. And spiritual control of our, of our minds, of your mind, my mind, is accomplished by yielding to the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.14 For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. So to be led is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. A Spirit-controlled mind is a catalyst for prayer and as well an awareness of the devil's tactics. 1 Peter 4, 7, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment, and what? Sober spirit, for the purpose of prayer. You need a spirit-controlled mind if you're going to pray right. 1 Peter 5, 8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, again, be of what? Sober spirit, be alert. Be aware of the devil's tactics. And so if we're going to be prepared, believer, we need to be sober in spirit. We need to have a spirit-controlled mind. And second, you and I need to fix our hope. We need to fix our hope. And this hope is not a wishful thinking. But remember, it's an eager, active, confident expectation that knows that the triune God will grant His children their inheritance. That's our hope. Our hope is that we have an eager, active, confident expectation that the triune God will grant you and me as His children our inheritance. And therefore, we do not need to become weary in suffering or worse, consider abandoning our faith. Listen to the words of Hebrews 10, 35 to 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Don't throw away your hope, which has a great reward, a great inheritance. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Now, the verb translated here in 1 Peter 1, 13, 
translated as fix your hope, means literally to set or place your hope in something. That's a second person plural imperative verb meaning all of you set your hope. There's not one of you believers who are not to set your hope. All of us are to set our hope in the grace to be brought. Now the term grace here is synonymous with the term salvation used back in verses 9 and 10 and the term inheritance used back in verse 4. So we have three terms now salvation, grace, and inheritance that are all synonymous, all talking about the same thing. And therefore, believers, you and me, we are to set our hope not on the fleeting things of this world, but upon our inheritance, which is the object of salvation. And as well, notice that the grace is to be brought. It's in the passive voice, meaning that this grace is being given to us by someone else, and that someone else is God. As well, to be brought is in the present tense, meaning that this grace or this inheritance is in the process of being given. You and I, child of God, are enjoying some of the inheritance now, but we are not enjoying what we will someday enjoy. The grace or inheritance will be given in full at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that term revelation refers to the revealing of Jesus Christ to the church at the rapture. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8, So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation, the appearing, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what a glorious day the rapture of the church is going to be. So living your blessed life. You want to live not your best life, you want to live your blessed life. And if you're going to live your blessed life, even in the, amid a hostile world, even though you're scattered, even though you're suffering, you can still live the blessed life, you've got to first be prepared. And secondly, you've got to be obedient. You've got to be obedient. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in ignorance. As obedient children. Now that phrase obedient children is a Hebraism which translates as children of obedience. Children of obedience does not mean that obedience produces salvation. Instead, salvation produces habitual obedience. And the phrase is used of us as believers, contrasting with our former lifestyle as the children of disobedience. Ephesians 2.2 2, In which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the what? Sons or children of disobedience. That's what we once were. Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, but for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons or the children of disobedience. That's what we once were. We were once children of disobedience. But now because we've been saved... And again, that goes back to the foreknowledge of God, the sanctifying of the Holy Spirit, and the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. Because we've been saved, we are no longer children of disobedience. We've been adopted, and we are now children of obedience. Now, this children of obedience metaphor is given to encourage us to be obedient to God as children are obedient to their parents. 
Now, I will admit, I will confess, in case you won't, that obedience is not a popular virtue amongst Christians. Be honest. Obedience is not a popular virtue. There is a puzzling pride amongst believers, especially here in the United States, a puzzling pride regarding disobedience and rebellion. Joseph Exel said this, Obedience is said to be the virtue of older social conditions, such as accompanied feudalism or absolute monarchy, older conditions to which democracy has succeeded. It was natural, we are reminded, for arbitrary rulers to make much of a temper of mind which betrayed their powers. But in a democratic age, liberty takes the place of obedience. Liberty is the typical virtue of free, self-imposed, self-governing man, and obedience as a virtue has had its day. You see, today, Christians are pleading for their supposed rights, but say little of their responsibility to be obedient. Portions of Scripture are preached which stress one's right to the neglect of those passages which teach obedience. Nevertheless, my friends, we are to be obedient in all things, no matter how difficult or strange. Abraham obeyed God when commanded to sacrifice Isaac. Joshua and the men of Israel obeyed God when commanded to march around Jericho for seven days, seven times on the seventh day, and then blow their trumpets. And since God is the potter and we are the clay, He has the sovereign right to command us to do whatever pleases Him, and our duty is to obey. Now notice Peter says here, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance. Children of obedience are to not be conformed to the former lust. Now the term conformed here means to be fashioned or molded into a pattern of behavior. The same phrase, do not be conformed to this world, is used in Romans 12 too. And it can be rendered this way. Stop being molded by the external and fleeting fashions of this age. Thus conformity then is adopting the attitude or the mindset of the culture in which one lives. And such conformity then results in disobedience. So we're not to adopt the attitude or mindset of the culture in which we live. And Peter de uh, defines that here as don't mold yourself to your former lust. Now what are lust? Lust are excessive and self-indulgent cravings that satisfy one's carnal appetites. And carnal appetites, according to 1 Peter 4.3, include such things as sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And that's just to name a few. Interestingly, 1 Peter 1 presents a unique contrast between a believer's former life and a present life. You see, in our former life, we were ignorant of God. But in our present life, we have knowledge of Christ and God. In our former life, we were not God's children or people. 
In our present life, we are now God's children and people. In our former life, we were controlled by our lust. In our present life, we're now controlled by obedience to God. In our, our former life was a futile way of life. In our present life, we're being, we've been called to a holy way of life. In our former life, we were affirmed by society. Now in our present life, we are maligned by society. And so the command to not be conformed recognizes the fact that you and I, our life, is not lived passively. The desires of the flesh are like the siren's call, constantly wooing us to sin. We must actively resist the allure of our former lust. And the primary means of not conforming is to be transformed through the renewal of our mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This transformation is a metamorphosis or a change from one thing to another like a caterpillar changing into a butterfly. And such a change can only occur through the renewing of the mind, which requires continuous study and application of Scripture. Psalm 119.11, Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 15 and 16 of Psalm 119, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Again, this underscores the necessity of, to keep sober or to have your mind spiritually controlled and balanced. Are you doing that? Are you giving in, conforming to your former lust, or are you renewing your mind? You've had two choices. You're either acting like a child of disobedience, or you're behaving like a child of obedience. And again, if you're going to renew your mind, you're only going to renew your mind to the degree that you're in the Scriptures, not just reading the Scripture, but studying it, meditating on it, and applying it to your life. Now notice here what Peter says. The children of disobedience live according to their carnal appetites out of ignorance or lack of understanding or perception. Acts 3.17, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, Walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Being that the majority of Peter's readers were Jewish believers, the term ignorance was akin to being a Gentile who does not know God or His law. In other words... Unbelievers are disobedient because they do not know God and are untaught in God's law. Therefore, they behave according to their sinful desires and are unable to control or conquer them. However, believers, we know God. We have received His law and are therefore bound to obey Him. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. As John Calvin aptly stated, the sum of the whole law and of all that God requires of us is this, that His image should shine forth in us 
so that we should not be degenerate children. Believer, are you behaving like a degenerate or as a regenerate? So you want to live your blessed life. You got to be prepared. You prepare by keeping your mind sober, keeping your mind spirit controlled, and fixing your hope, fixing your hope on your inheritance. We said secondly, that if you're going to live your blessed life, you've got to be obedient. You've got to be obedient. You have to stop conforming. You have to stop being molded and shaped by your former lust and start renewing your mind through the Word of God. Again, not just reading the Word of God, but applying the Word of God. And thirdly, finally, if we're going to live our blessed life, we've got to be holy. We've got to be holy. We've got to be prepared, we've got to be obedient, and we need to be holy. Verse 15 and 16 of 1 Peter chapter 1, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Notice verse 15 begins with a term of contrast, but in contrast to being conformed to the former lust, you and I are to be like the Holy One who called you. That word like indicates that believers are to pattern their behavior after the Holy One. There's a lot of meat in that little four-letter word, isn't there? You are to pattern your behavior after the Holy One who called you. And the Holy One is a standard Old Testament description for God, denoting His self-designation. Isaiah 43.3 For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Notice He called. Called. Called is a shepherding term, referring to the voice of the shepherd summoning the sheep into His presence. The term was used when Jesus called the twelve out of the disciples to serve as apostles. Matthew 4.21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. The term called is also used to call sinners to repentance, Matthew 9.13. But go and learn what this means, quote, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. By the way, let me pause there. If you turn your Bible over to Matthew 9.13 and you're using a NASB 95 update or uh, another uh, translation, you may notice that the phrase, I desire compassion, not sacrifice, is in capital letters, indicating this is a quote from the Old Testament. So Christ says, go and learn what this means. He quotes the Old Testament, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, contextually, the term called in 1 Peter is best understood by 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. God has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And this call should not be confused with the call to apostleship or the call to repentance. Here, the call is the effectual call through which God brings people to Himself. This calling is a divine creative command. In the same way in which God commanded light to appear out of the darkness, so God commands light to appear in the heart darkened by sin's depravity. It is a call to life out of death. And the called are summoned out of Satan's kingdom and brought into the kingdom of God. 
But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself in all your behavior. Let's talk about holiness for a moment. God's essential attribute is holiness. Both Testaments speak more about God's holiness than any of His other attributes. That God is holy means that He is set apart from all others. 1 Samuel 2.2, 2, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Because God is holy, He is without peer. He is transcendent. He is distinct from His creation. He is exalted above us. R.C. Sproul explains that the primary meaning of holy is separate. It comes from an ancient word that meant to cut or to separate. Perhaps even more accurate, he says, would be the phrase, a cut above something. When we find a garment or another piece of merchandise that is outstanding, that has a superior excellence, we use the expression that is a quote above the rest. And so when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendently separate. He is so far above and beyond us that He seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. The same basic meaning is used when the word holy is applied to earthly things. Now holiness also implies absolute moral purity. There's nothing immoral about God. Habakkuk 1.13 tells us he is free from sin. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. As stated, God's holiness is his preeminent attribute. It is both absolute and relational. As absolute, God's holiness sets him apart from anything less than himself. But as relational, holiness relates to you and me when God called us and set us apart from sin to Himself. You see, friend, when God called you, He set you apart, He made you holy, and now we are to conform our behavior, pattern our behavior to holiness, to be holy as He is holy. By commanding us to be holy as God is holy, Peter expects us to be imitators of God. Be like the Holy One. Pattern yourself after the Holy One. The influence of Peter's statement is Jesus' ministry. During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In a different sermon, Jesus said in Luke 6.36, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now consider two thoughts. One, we are to be imitators of Christ. Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. So we're to be imitators of Christ. Two, Christ only did what He saw His Father do. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner, John 5.19. So in reality, being a Christian is to be an imitator of God. Furthermore, people imitate who or what they worship. Micah 4.5 says, Though all the people walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we'll walk in the name of our Lord, our God, forever and ever. Believers who worship God will imitate His holiness. If you're not worshiping God, 
If something else or someone else has preeminence in your life above God, you're going to worship them, not God. And guess what? You're not going to be like God. You're not going to be holy. You're going to be something else altogether different. And if you're worshiping something that's lustful, then you're really in trouble because you're going to be the farthest thing from holy. Notice the quote, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That quote is from Leviticus 19, verse 2. Leviticus 19, verse 2. Peter appeals to Leviticus because it is the preeminent book on God's holiness. The term holy appears more in Leviticus than any other book in the Bible. The entire book is about teaching God's people how to be holy. It's no wonder that Leviticus is the first book children learn in the rabbinic education system. And sadly though, most believers today have never read, let alone studied, Leviticus. Is there any wonder that the people of God today struggle to imitate the holiness of God? I say, no, I'm not surprised. If you want to pattern your life after God's holiness, it's high time to begin to study the book of Leviticus, to dig into it, to draw out whether it be precepts or principles, and learn how to imitate God's holiness. See, in the context of Leviticus, God commanded Israel to separate herself from all the evil practices of Egypt and Canaan. Leviticus 18, 3 and 4, You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan. You shall not walk in their statutes. Thus, to be holy means to live differently amid the culture in which one lives. And listen, while cultures and society change, God's word remains the same. Hence, we are to separate ourselves from the evil ideas from the evil practices of the culture and society in which we live. Furthermore, the injunction to be holy extends, Peter says, to all your behavior. That is, in every area of your life, of my life, we are to be separated from sin because God is separated from sin. Examine yourself. Can you say that in all of your behavior, you are holy? You have separated yourself from evil ideas or evil practices that our culture or society might think are normal. Look at your life, every area of your life. Examine it and make sure it's set apart from sin. To that end, God has given His law to govern our lives. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15. God has given His law so that we can pattern His holiness, His mercy, His perfection, or any of His other attributes. Obedience to God's law, for example, perfects God's love in His people, and it proves that they belong to Him. In 1 John chapter 2, in verse 5, it tells us that love is perfected in obedience to Him. Whoever keeps His word... In Him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. So if we obey His word, His law, we know His love is in us. Now I want to take a moment and I want you to uh, consider the 
how or how God's law mirrors God's character. See, God's character is holy. Now, we've already seen in 1 Peter 1.16, we're to be holy as God is holy. But Romans 7 verse 12 says that God's word, His law, is holy. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, it tells us that God is just. Romans 7.12 tells us that God's law is just. In Psalm 25 verse 8, it says God is good. Romans 7.12 tells us that God's law is good. Matthew 5.48, God is perfect. Psalm 19.7, God's law is perfect. Psalm 31 verse 5, God is truth. Psalm 119, 142, and 151, God's law is truth. Matthew 11.30, God is not burdensome. 1 John 5.3, God's law is not burdensome. 1 John 1.5, God is light. Proverbs 6.23, God's law is a light. 1 John 4.8, God is love. Romans 13.10, God's law is love. Psalm 145.17, God is righteous. Psalm 119.172, God's law is righteous. 1 John 3.3, 3, God is pure. Psalm 19.8, God's law is pure. John 4.24, God is spiritual. Romans 7.14, His law is spirit. Malachi 3.6, God is unchangeable. Matthew 5.18, God un- God's law is unchangeable. Genesis 21.33, God is eternal. Psalm 111.78, God's law is eternal. And so as we seek to know God's law and obey God's law, we in turn pattern God in His holiness, His justice, His goodness, His perfection, His truth, etc. Now on the topic of obeying God's law, consider the words of John MacArthur. He says, When we obey the law of God, we give ultimate honor to God. We affirm His holiness, and we seek to imitate His holiness. That the highest and the noblest kind of worship. So to come along and say that the law is unimportant is to say that the very nature of God and the will of God as reflected in His law is insignificant and unimportant which I see as a blow or a strike against the very character of God. That is why at the end of Romans 3, Paul says, after talking about justification by grace through faith alone, he says, do we nullify the law? And then he says, meganoito, no, 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 God forbid, but we establish the law. Faith does not nullify the law, but rather establishes it. Romans 3.31. It doesn't replace the law because the law was never a way of salvation. Salvation was always based on grace through faith. But saving faith does establish the law. The word establish means it makes it firm or stable. It institutes it permanently by enactment or agreement. If faith does not invalidate God's law, but returns God's law to its proper place, which was Jesus' purpose. Again, John MacArthur says here, Jesus lifted up the law in the Old Testament so high that he wound up exposing all the Pharisees and the scribes as hypocrites. Jesus arrives and opens up his sermon by saying, Here's my standard of righteousness, and here's how you live in the world, and the base of it all is to be obedient to God's invaluable and unchanging law. Anyone who doesn't live by God's standards, who substitutes a man-made system, is no more than a spiritual phony. Are you a spiritual phony, or are you real? Listen, God has given you His law, not to save you. It cannot save you. It points you to the need of a Savior, and then after you're saved, it points you to how to live a holy life. Do you want to live holy? Do you want to live righteously? Do you want to live truthfully, spiritually? Do you want to live as God wants you to live? you want to imitate Him? Then you've got to study and Obey it. You know, living in a pagan world, 
we are more accustomed to hearing the term holy as an expletive instead of as an exclamation of reverence. What God has called holy is sacred and set apart. And when believers, when you describe something as holy, do you realize that you are equating that person or object with God? i.e. the Holy Bible. When we say Holy Bible, we're equating the Bible with God. Therefore, adding the term holy to an expletive or a euphemism is the equating of something common, ordinary, or even filthy with God who is sacred, exalted, and pure. And thus, holy smoke, holy cow, or any other holy, whatever, is the equivalent of blasphemy against God. Interestingly, we're living in a pagan and hostile world. And you know, as we're reading through 1 Peter, as we're studying 1 Peter, you would think that the emphasis would be upon evangelism. Nevertheless, we find very little in Peter's epistle about evangelism. Now, that's not to say that evangelism is unimportant. The example of Peter's life demonstrates the vital role of evangelism. Go through the book of Acts sometime. However, before you and I begin to evangelize, we must first examine ourselves. Are we prepared? Are our minds continuously saturated in God's Word so that we are always ready to explain the hope that dwells within us? Are we obedient? Are our lives lived following the law of God or the desires of the flesh? And are we holy? Are our words and deeds exhibiting a lifestyle different from the pagan world around us? Friends, the survival of believers, the survival of the church, rest on holiness, obedience, and preparation. Live your blessed life. Be prepared, be obedient, and be holy. And it's only when we are striving to obey in these areas, only when we're striving, when we're prepared, and only when we're holy, will our evangelistic effort be productive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that you've given to us here, the most sure word, Father. Lord, you told us that even in the amid suffering, being scattered, living in a pagan, hostile world, we can live our blessed life as long as we're prepared, as long as we're obedient, and as long as we're holy. Father, help us to that ends. Examine us, Lord. Have your spirit to come alongside of us, Lord, and see if there's anything in us, Lord, that is not aligned with what you require, whether it begins with our mind, our thinking, if we are rational, or whether we're biblical, that, Father, you would purge out the complacency and theological laziness that we as believers tend to give in to. Father, I pray that you would help us not to conform to our former lust but that rather, Father, we would strive to renew our minds by studying, meditating, and applying your word. And then, Lord, as we want to be like you, then, Lord, we need to obey you. And so, Father, help us to dig into your word, into your law, even to begin in Leviticus, Father, and see what holiness is all about. And, Father, if there's an area in our life that's not holy, that, Lord, you may convict us, and give us victory over it as we repent, confess, and forsake it. We pray in your Son's matchless name. Amen.